This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and joining me is Laura Souter. Hi there. So this week we're going to make sense of the big announcements from the autumn budget and work out what they really mean for you and your money. So Leif Kalaf and Tom Selby have been sifting through all of the numbers and they'll be joining us in a second to help make sense of it all. Now I'll be looking at the reasons why stock markets perked up in recent weeks. Later on I'll be talking to Faye Wren from the Cerno Pacific Fund. She's got a keen interest in companies with lots of intellectual property as you'll find out. And Black Friday is just around the corner. So Dan and I will be chatting about its relevance today, whether it's going to be a bit of good news for retailers on the stock market, and we'll also have some tips to bag the best bargains. First up, it's time to go through the important bits from Chancellor Jeremy Hunt and his autumn statement. Hello, I'm Tom Selby from AJ Bell. I'm joined by Leif Kalaf, also from AJ Bell. So we're a few hours clear now of Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. Um, That's the fifth major fiscal policy statement of 2022. I think that's roughly one every two months, which to my mind is probably too many for a a normal calendar year, but that's where we are at the moment. So the, the backdrop to today's autumn statement, clearly rising inflation in the UK economy, so the latest CPI inflation rate of 11%. We're also seeing rising interest rates and a, and a wider economy that most believe is already in recession. So that's the situation that the Chancellor was dealing with and he set out three priorities as part of his autumn statement today. So it was stability, growth and enhancing our public services. Now, that those priorities are going to have implications for everyone's personal finances through some of the tax announcements that were made today. And we'll, we'll pick up the main ones that are likely to affect you momentarily. But first, Leith, I, I wondered if you just wanted to outline exactly what this long anticipated Office for Budget Responsibility report mm. tells us about the world today and how it might look in the coming years. Presumably, it's pretty gruesome reading. Yeah, it's it's not pretty at the moment. Um, and I think um, it's important to kind of recognise that there is a lot of stuff that went on today. Mm. Um, and, and obviously, we're still digesting a lot of it. Um, you know, there were a lot of announcements today. Um, a lot of them have been trailed. So we've had a little bit yeah. of a head start, haven't we? But but also, there's still um, an awful lot um, uh, of details. So, I mean, the the kind of broad economic picture is that there was a black hole in the government's finances somewhere in the region of 55 billion pounds. And, you know, the main drivers of that have been the energy price freeze, uh, which was very costly, um, a weaker economic forecast, which, um, uh, which, which downgrades the amount of tax revenues that the government can expect and also higher borrowing costs for the government because interest rates are higher. So all of those things have led to this £55 billion black hole. And the government has decided that it's going to fill that black hole uh, with uh, around £30 billion worth of spending cuts and £25 billion of tax rises. 
Um, so, you know, overall, the shape of their plan looks progressive in nature, uh, by which uh, we mean that the wealthiest are being hit hardest and more support is being provided to the poorest. And within that context, the tax burden is forecast to rise to its highest level uh, since the Second World War. So coming in at 37% of, of gross depend, uh, uh, domestic product. So that's what the economy produces. So we are facing a an already high and increasing tax burden. And the, the reason is obviously to balance the books. And actually, um, as well as all the kind of spending cuts and uh, the tax rises, there's also had to be some moving of the goalposts um, so that the Chancellor has more chance of getting the ball in the back of the net in terms of his fiscal rules. So the fiscal rules until today were we're going to have debt falling as a percentage of the economy in in three years' time. That's now been moved out to five years um, in order to kind of, I guess, incorporate the big shock that we're getting from from energy prices and, and the recession that we're all, all expecting. So that's, the, I guess, the economic picture. The good news probably is that markets have reacted fairly neutrally, which I think, you know, was probably um, the big worry given the, what, what had happened in the, in the previous mini budget. Um, I don't think anyone was expecting a very big move in markets today. We've seen a little bit of pressure on the pound, but um, you know, you know, we're, we're recording sort of late on um, uh, uh, Thursday afternoon. It's fallen about one and a half cents against the dollar, really back to where it was at the beginning of the week. So I don't think that's that's hugely perturbing. And and most importantly, I think the gilt market um, has been has been steady. I was waiting um, for you to mention the gilt market. It's, yes, it's, I know, very big in pensions world, isn't it? Something, so, yeah. so, well, something, something that everybody's all of a sudden both interested in and an expert in. Indeed, well, yes, well, it's a very um, fusty, fusty part of the fusty and dusty <laughs> part of the of the of the market, isn't it? That suddenly had a spotlight shone on it. Um, but but yeah, so gilt yields staying steady, and that's that's um, a, a positive sign in terms of government borrowing. Um, and also probably things like like mortgages um, as well. So, so yes. Yeah, so you know the the economy forecast to um, to um, uh, shrink over the next year or so, which again we already kind of kind of knew was happening. I think it's also important to point out that there is a high degree of uncertainty about yeah. all of these forecasts, and actually. You know, from what I've seen, I wouldn't be hugely surprised if, as we go into next year, actually there's some more positive news for the Chancellor. And the reason that I say that is that all of the OBR's economic forecasts, one of the key ingredients of those forecasts is what the market is expecting for interest rates to do. And the market is currently expecting interest rates to peak at 5%, right? Now, they may do that, but the Bank of England, only a couple of weeks ago said, we think that that's too much. We don't think it's good. It's good. they're going up by that much. Now, they may well be wrong, but if they're not, then actually, you know, when we get to next year and if interest rates don't get to 5%, actually that gives the Chancellor a bit more fiscal room because that will mean that the, the OBR will actually bump up their economic forecasts and also reduce their forecasts for the cost of government borrowing as well. So, 
you know, no one knows how this is all going to play out, but that might be, you know, a little bit of a glimmer of hope for the future. Yeah, and that, that's one thing I think to to remember whenever we see these forecasts is that they're incredibly sensitive to very small changes in things like interest rates or the way that the economy grows or things like that, even just you know, par- par- partial percentage points changes in what happens in either of those parts of the, the economy can, can fundamentally change what the UK's fiscal position is, can't it? Yeah, that, that's right. And I mean, there's a huge number of variables that go into the mm-hmm. projections. And, you know, they're not right. They, you know, they, they, they can never possibly be absolutely bang on the money. But at the same time, we have to have some kind of framework yeah. for deciding how we're going to kind of suspend stuff. So we have to have some kind of, you know, some kind of forecast there. And actually, that's why it's important that the OBR is there, because it's an independent body. Um, and it's there to kind of make those forecasts independent of what the people who are making those tax and spending decisions um, are, are, are thinking and what they want to happen. Um, and that's, as we saw, I think, a very important part of why the mini budget, mm-hmm. um, you know, from, from September was a bit of a disaster zone because it didn't have this sort of independent verification of numbers and this wider sort of, you know, look at what the government finances look like, because what the what, you know, what the previous chancellor was essentially asking the capital market to do was come and fund deficit spending without being able to inspect the country's books. And it's like, well, nobody's <laughs> nobody's going to be particularly happy about that situation. You know, if you're if you're going to lend mon- money to a country, you want to see the finances or at least some kind of projection in the finances so that you can take a take a view on how good those are, whether they're right or wrong, but at least have a basis for those discussions. Okay, so that's an excellent overview of of where we are and, and the situation that the the UK finds itself in, and, w- and what the OBR is thinking about the future as well. So let's let's start picking through the the debris of this autumn <laughs> statement and some of the specific measures that are going to affect people's finances. So we can kick this kick this around between ourselves and hopefully cover the main points that are going to have an impact on people's pockets. So you mentioned that the um, the overall tax burden is going to be the highest since World War Two. That clearly means we're going to see some increases in the amount of tax that people are going to be paying over the next five years. So we might as well start with some of the less good news or, or bad news, as some people would like to call it. So firstly, it's I guess the, the headline measure here is around um, people's income tax allowances. So the personal allowance, the basic and higher rate tax ban, so the point at which the basic 20% rate of income tax kicks in and the higher 40% rate of income tax rate kicks in, they're going to be frozen for an additional two years versus the previous plan so the plan was to keep them frozen until the end of this parliament those 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 tax bans are now going to be frozen until 2027 28 and with earnings growing naturally you're going to see lots more people pulled into paying higher levels of tax than they would have been paying previously if those allowances had gone up in line with with earnings or in line with inflation now you also you mentioned the fact that it's the, the the highest earners who are bear, bearing the brunt of this, and we've we've seen that in what the chancellor announced on the top rate of income tax as well. So the top rate of income tax, that forty five p rate, is going to come down from one hundred fifty thousand pounds. So anyone earning over one hundred fifty thousand pounds at the moment pays forty five p income tax on earnings above that level. That's going to come down to one one hundred twenty five thousand one hundred and 
40 pounds. Now, the, the reason for that slightly odd figure is that that's between 100,000 pounds and 125,140 pounds is where the personal allowance taper kicks in. So the amount of personal allowance you get between 100,000 and just over 125 grand slowly reduces. So that's been aligned uh, with that taper. So for people in those positions, clearly there's the potential to be paying a bit more income tax as a result of this and and a bit more of an incentive to pay into things like pensions as well so if you're earning between around 125 grand and 150 grand then the contributions from that slice of income that's now going to be charged at 45 percent tax rate would benefit from 45 percent pension tax relief presuming you haven't got sufficient allowances in the tax year and sufficient lifetime allowance available as well in order to benefit from that so that's one thing that people can consider yeah, and it and it, it strikes me that actually, actually, Tom, it's it's you know just sort of leading on from that. It's actually you know slightly sort of bizarrely, it's actually quite a positive thing in terms mm-hmm. of kind of private pension savings because as that tax burden goes up, it actually kind of incentivizes people to save into a pension because yeah. of the tax saving that they get. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and I think in terms of just to balance out some of the less good news with some more positive news, that was one one area that um, I think most people who are saving for retirement and within the pensions industry more more generally were pleased with was that pensions tax allowances were were left untouched. So we had the usual pre-budget rumours and speculation about the possibility that higher rate tax relief might be scrapped altogether. There was also a suggestion that the the freeze in the lifetime allowance of just over a million pounds would be extended again beyond this parliament in the same way that the personal tax income tax allowances have been extended uh, freeze have been extended beyond this parliament we heard nothing on either of those so generally on pensions taxation if you don't hear anything in an autumn statement then it's good news so i think savers can breathe a sigh of relief in relation to that um, and i think the the third kind of the, the other key pensions thing that was mentioned and i think it, it gives you it tells you something about where we are um uh, in the political cycle and 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 where we are in terms of what can and can't be promised, that the big rabbit out of the hat was maintaining the state pension triple lock, which is a manifesto commitment. So normally, normally saying that you're going to stick with a manifesto commitment wouldn't be the kind of big firework that you would announce at the end of an autumn statement. I suspect the fact that there have been five major fiscal announcements this year means that what counts as a rabbit out of the hat is potentially being watered down with each uh, fiscal announcement that we that we have. But good news for people who are in receipt of the state pensions. So it means that the, the full flat rate state pension will go up from just over 185 quid a week to around £204 a week, just less than £204 a week. So that's the first time that the full flat rate state pension has been worth over £10,000 a year. So going up in line with September's 10.1% inflation figure uh, and the government warding off any any potential criticism about unfairness between working age and retired people by increasing working age benefits by by the same amount. Yeah, I, I, the other thing he said in the speech, actually, Tom, now and you just um, reminded me, actually, he said something about the um, a review of the state pension age mm. reporting next year as well. Do you kind yeah. of have any kind of insight into what that's um, what that's going yeah, to be? Yeah, I actually, I actually think that was one of the most interesting things that he said during the statement in relation to pensions. I think most of the other things had been expected. So we, we have a, a review into the state pension age that's due to be published in the early part of next year. Now, Jeremy Hunt didn't say anything specific about what that's going to say, but I think the fact that he 
flagged it up is potentially interesting. So at the moment, the state pension age is 66 due to rise to 67 by 2028 and then up to 68 by 2046. Now, there's some debate about when the when, so there is those second two increases that are open for review. So the increase to 67 and then the increase to 68. And um, there's some debate about whether or not they should happen quicker than planned or slower than planned. So there have been some life expectancy statistics that suggest that people's, uh, the improvements in life expectancy that, that the government's expecting to see uh, have dropped off in the last few years. So that might be an argument for um, for pushing back some of those state pension age increases equally, given the financial position the country finds itself in and the general demographic challenges um, of paying pensions to people for longer and life expectancy is still generally going up. I think I think it's more likely than not that we'll we'll see at best a, 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 the maintaining of the, those plans to increase the state pension age, if not possibly an, an acceleration and even looking at increasing the state pension age to 70 perhaps further down the track as well. So that's definitely one to keep an eye on, I think, for the future. There are no details today, but there were yeah. details, weren't there, of some wealth taxes and various other things mm. that are potentially going to affect people's incomes, weren't there? Yeah, there, there definitely was. Um, so, yeah, just to kind of run through a few of those, I think probably uh, the the two main ones, and I think these might, you know, stick in the craw a little bit for investors, mm-hmm. actually, um, is the tax-free dividend allowance is being reduced. So that is currently £2,000 of dividends you can receive every year without paying any tax on them. Uh, that's now being reduced to £1,000 from next April and then £500 from thereafter. Uh, and on alongside that, the um, the capital gains tax allowance, again, the amount that you can re- receive um, tax-free and the, the amount of profits you can make each year to tax-free is being reduced from 12300 uh, at the moment to 6000 next year, April, and then £3,000 the April after. So the reason that I say I think that those will stick in the craw a little bit is that they're aimed, I think, at small investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people are now probably going to find themselves um, paying paying tax on those dividends and, and capital gains. And for a lot of those people, it probably won't be a huge amount of tax, I suspect, but it will mean that they'll have to do a tax return. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there were, you know, and, and also they're not huge, they're not huge revenue raises. I mean, kind of collectively, those two kind of raised about £1.5 billion pounds. Um, at the far end of the of the forecast in five years' time, so it's not insignificant by any means, but it's not like a huge dial mover, yeah. and it is going to mean more people with small investments, I think, paying tax, uh, and also having to fill in a tax return, which is really annoying. Um, so um, there's those two, and again, you know, there are obviously kind of you know pensions and ICEs, which are really important to try and kind of you know insulate yourself mm-hmm. um, from from those taxes. It's harder, obviously, if you're if you're investing in property and you've got some capital gains, um, because you can't put those into a into an ISA, and um, you can't sell them off in properties off in chunks normally either. So, um, you know, it makes it more difficult to manage that side of things. 
Yeah, so we've also the, 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 the reason that pensions and ice has become more attractive there is because dividend taxation and CDT yes. doesn't apply when you're inside a pensions or an ISA tax wrapper as well as various other other tax wrappers. Um, but were there any other kind of eye catching things that, that you saw from the statement that you think people need to be aware of? So I think the um, the inheritance tax allowance mm-hmm. um uh, currently is £325,000 where you can have an inheritance tax-free with this also additional kind of property allowance of 175000 That was already being planned uh, to be frozen until 2026. That's now being pushed out till 2028. So mm-hmm. more people um, being being pulled into to that um, and to paying inheritance tax, you would expect by rising asset prices. Uh, the other probably big big bit of the bit of the picture that we you know kind of isn't um, is is kind of important, but um, is is kind of obviously the the energy price freeze itself. That yeah. was the other big bit of news that we got today. So we know that that's being currently um, frozen. Energy energy prices frozen at a at a rate which means that the typical household is paying two thousand five hundred pounds um, a year. Uh, which was, um, you know, actually, well, you know, the uh, quasi Quartang said that that was actually going to apply for two years. Jeremy Hunt said, well, came in and said, well, we'll apply it till April and then we'll see. We're going to have to work out what we do from then. Well, today they announced what they're going to do from then on. So from next April until the following April, there's still going to be a cap, but it's going to be set at £3,000 for the, the typical household. So people will again be paying more for their energy prices, presuming that, um, you know, that they still remain ele- elevated. And on the flip side of that coin, we also had an extension of um, the windfall tax, which was, has been very widely anticipated. So, yeah. um, you know, kind of oil and oil and gas companies are going to be paying at a higher rate of, of, of tax on their profits. And also uh, there was a, a widening of the of the net to also include um, electricity generators as well. So more money coming in. Uh, from uh, from the people who are effectively benefiting from from higher energy prices, and then I think just finally for me there was also yeah. uh, something on stamp duty as well. So again, just to run back a few weeks and several fiscal statements, uh, <laughs> was, uh, you know, Quasi Quateng in the mini budget announced a um, uh, a uh, reduction in stamp duty, so increased the threshold at which you pay stamp duty from 125,000 to 250,000 pounds on a property purchase and actually that's from 300,000 pounds to 425,000 pounds for first time buyers so that nil rate band that you pay no stamp duty on was increased and when Jeremy Hunt came in he said well actually we're going to keep that i think it was largely because it was yeah. already going through parliament um, he said we're going to we're going to stick with that and actually today he's rode back a bit he said we are going to stick with that but actually only till 2025. And that means he gets more money after that. And it also means that in the meantime, you know, there's there's an incentive for people to kind of, you know, buy a house. Um, and and as we know, kind of, you know, there's the government always keen to make sure that there isn't going to be a housing crash um, and, and, you know, kind of prop up activity as well. Um, so I think that's that's probably a lot of the key points. Like I say, there was a lot in there today. Um, so there w- there will be, I'm sure, other stuff in there um, um, that that we that we haven't uh, covered. But I think that is the main the main thing 
that, that kind of, you know, that people really need to know about. Yeah, so a huge amount of stuff for people to to get their heads around and that are potentially, potentially going to affect lots of savers and investors and employees and retirees as well as well. What was your, what what was your kind of overarching view of what we saw today? Do you think it was a a, a reasonable autumn statement given where we are as a country and do you think the measures were targeted broadly in a in a fair and sensible way? Um, I, I actually think, yes, it was. Um, so, um, you know, I think there has been a, a lot of talk about how, you know, the situation that we're in uh, was created by um, Trussonomics and Quasi Quarteng. And I don't think that's really the, the, the case. I mean, definitely the mini budget was a disaster. Um, and definitely those those plans, you know, probably weren't going to fly even if they would even if they were done properly, I think. Um, but actually, the kind of, you know, the, 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 the problems that that mini budget created in terms of higher gilt yields and uh, a collapse in the currency have now basically gone. OK, we're back to, to where, we, where we were before. And actually, the issues that we're dealing with now are genuinely... Um, issues that have been building up for a long time, mm-hmm. obviously in terms of kind of energy prices and having to protect consumers from that. And obviously in terms of like, you know, we've got a huge amount of debt already hanging over us and that's just getting more important, more expensive with, with higher interest rates. So there were problems that were building up and had to be dealt with. Um, and obviously kind of how you, you know, kind of the political choices is, is how you deal with them. And I think what we've got here is a bit of a balance between raising taxes and spending cuts and also those taxes kind of you know falling mostly on the shoulders of people who are more able to withstand them uh, and the support going to people who need it um, so you know overall that kind of for me strikes a balance and also importantly of course it means that you know the markets haven't reacted in a negative way so okay. I think all of all of that for me means it's a job well done. What, what about yourself? Any any thoughts from yourself on that front? Well, I think I think um, as as you as you go through the individual measures, I think the thing that struck me as, as away from the politics it is just the the volume of stuff, the volume of change that investors and savers have got to navigate here, and clearly there is going to be some pain for people, but. Also, if you are savvy and you take your time and you can plan your finances, then there are genuine possibilities in various ways to reduce the impact it has on you, particularly in terms of you know using tax efficient vehicles and things like that to 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 ensure that as little of your money is going to the taxman as possible. I think I, I agree with the sentiment of what you're saying. I think it was. Uh, it, it, I think if we, if we had a chancellor there who's got limited room for manoeuvre, it's fair to say. I think we were never going to get huge surprises. And as I said, the, fact, the rabbit out of the hat was the state pension triple lock being maintained probably shows just how little wriggle room there was for the chancellor to say anything truly dramatic. I think the aim was to deliver something that was fairly steady as she goes, that keeps confidence in the markets and that broadly makes sure that those who earn the most bear the brunt of what is going to be a painful few years and so I think if that was the the aim then it would have been successful now whether or not that's going to be 
a successful recipe for winning a general election in uh, is it less than two years time um i'm not entirely sure i think time will tell um i think there'll be some 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 praying going on at the treasury and in number 10 that the economic environment improves and some goodies can be handed out to voters yeah. just before that election arrives um well i think so- that's yeah i mean that there's there's you know the cynical bit of me thinks that actually this is kind of getting all the bad news out of the way and then you know hopefully there'll be some good news next year as we kind of um lead into that that election I think you might be right. So as as, as Leith mentioned, we're, we're, we're recording this just after the autumn statement. We think we've gone through all the major announcements, but it's always possible that there'll be something devilish hidden away in either some of the the back of some of the papers or in some of the annexes or possibly something that links to another piece of tax policy that we've not thought about yet. But if any nasties come out, then we'll promise to update you about those as they become clear. But for now, Leith, thanks very much and we'll see you later. Thanks, Tom. I hope you found that analysis useful and that you've got a clearer idea as to what's going to happen with your taxes and allowances. But obviously, sometimes the devil is in the detail and that's an initial quick reaction from us. So we'll chat more on future podcasts if there are any important things that we missed or that we think are worthwhile delving into a bit more detail on. But now let's move on to the market. So, Dan, what's been happening? Well, it's been pretty good time, actually, to be an investor after most of the year has been pretty miserable. Um, the last sort of month sort of things really picked up. And in particular, the 10th of November saw some really large one day gains in the US. The Nasdaq was up 7.4 percent in a single day. The S&P 500 was up 5.5 percent. And even in the UK, the mid cap FTSE 250 index was up nearly 4 percent in a day. And there's sort of particular reasons why we've seen this sort of burst of life with equities. Principally, the the latest U.S. inflation figures were weaker than people expected. Of course, that sort of feeds this hope that the Federal Reserve will pivot, change its strategy, stop putting up interest rates so quickly. And of course, that's what people really want. Stocks have actually been moving higher for a bit longer in the U.K. because I think one by one, so worries are being addressed. You know, we had all that sort of political chaos in the UK. I think that sort of died down now. Rishi Sunak is in charge. Um, the Brazilian elections sort of uh, were sort of a surprise, a positive uh, response to the result there. In the US, the Democrats did better than expected in the midterms. You know, the dollar strength has been a real issue for companies, and that's sort of easing off in recent weeks. Ukraine has been fighting back in the war. And China sort of hasn't really escalated this threat to invade Taiwan. And also there's sort of signs of reopening in China and, and perhaps having less stringent rules around COVID from you know, early next year. Because this is all sort of fed into um, increased investor appetite. So some of the sort of stocks that have been really beaten up this year, they're the ones that sort of been bouncing back quite fast. Um, names like ASOS up 40%. Aston Martin's up nearly the same over a single month. Of course, this, the, the big question here is whether is this a sort of a classic bear market rally? So these are sort of common. You'd see in you know when you have tough market conditions, you do get little spurts where, where sort of shares do go up. The, the key point is whether this is sort of um, you know they're going to fade away or actually we are at a sort of a, a turning point for the market. You know there are some key things to think about here. You know the UK inflation figures are worse than expected. Um, we've just had 
a missile hitting Poland, a reminder that the, you know, the war is still going on. Um, US, you know, while US inflation figures weren't as bad as thought, they're still much higher than the sort of the two percent target from the central bank. So, so really, it's not that sort of a clear cut situation that markets will keep rallying from here. So Black Friday is only a matter of days away and shopkeepers across the UK and abroad are gearing up for what they hope will be a bumper period for sales. And presumably they're hoping that it will give a bit of a boost to the high street that's been struggling of late. So, Dan, are you excited about Black well, Friday? I can't say it overly excites me, but it's certainly a, a sort of a date in the calendar <laughs> you, you've got to, to watch. I mean, I reckon most people sort of would associate it with sort of TV footage of people fighting over TVs and stores and you know, massive queues of people waiting to go in and, and pick up discounted products. But I don't know if it's just me, Laura, but, you know, that sort of uh, reputation just feels like ages ago. In recent years, I think I just remember seeing lots of cameras there waiting for big crowds to come in and there's just no one there. And I think, you know... It, I think it's definitely, I mean, like all shopping, it's so much more shifted online and the visual of people, you know, logging onto a website and searching for a deal is not quite as good for the TV cameras as hordes of people queuing outside the store. I think it's also something that's much bigger in the US than it is here. It's another one of those kind of US transplant things that came over here, but it's maybe not quite so large in bricks and mortar retail stores as it is over there. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that certainly in this country, the, the retailers are sort of spreading it out over many weeks to have this sort of money off. It's not sort of particularly this one day only. And, um, you know, maybe maybe that's probably the same in the US these days. I mean, Laura, do you, do you know what's the history behind Black Friday? Why it actually exists? No, I feel like I should. But I don't. Enlighten me. Enlighten me and all of well, the listeners. Well, I mean, the, the general sort of consensus is this it, one-day event was designed by US shops to boost sales immediately after Thanksgiving. But actually, if you go back to the 1950s, um, the day after Thanksgiving then was regarded as the sort of start of the Christmas shopping season. And, and so you could argue that Black Friday has got its roots there. Also, at the same time in the 50s, it was a term to describe the day after Thanksgiving because workers typically called in sick. They just wanted to have sort of a four day weekend. But now, <laughs> I th- you know, it's, it's morphed into this bigger event, which has got Cyber Monday as well. You know, after they had this sort of the, the Black Friday weekend. So, you know, again, this is sort of created by retailers to encourage more people to shop online. Now, that was launched in 2005 because, as you were saying earlier, so many people now do their shopping online. You, you wonder why that you just all lump it all together. That so you have a, a sort of a four day period where there's this sort of core of promotions. I, I guess you, you must be the same, Laura, as everyone else. You, if you're looking to take part in any of these offers, are you actually just going to simply sit behind a computer and not even bother to go to the shops? Yeah, I mean, I don't really go to the shops anyway. Full stop. I can't remember the last time I went to a shopping centre. Um, other than maybe popping into a shop in the train station on my way to and from work. So all of my shopping now is done online. But also I think it's a, it's easier for consumers now. So if you've got these Black Friday sales on and you're doing your shopping online, you can so easily compare the different sales from different places if you're looking for one item and find the best offer plus an extra discount code Um on top that gives you a much better deal than if you were going to the high street maybe yeah i mean th- there really is a massive question mark about how much money will be spent 
this year with this sort of Black Friday period. You know, the cost of living crisis has really made people think twice about how much, well, not only what they spend, but how much money they've actually got left after paying the bills. So, so really, they've got sort of three choices here. Black Friday deals in front of them. They can either buy less using the available cash they've got. They're not going to buy anything at all. Or they can buy what they want using credit cards. But of course, that risks getting them more into debt. And Statista's put out some sort of uh, forecasts for what it thinks will happen. It reckons UK consumers are going to spend £8.7 billion between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. That is down from £9.4 billion same period last year i mean 8.7 billion still sounds like a lot of money doesn't it yeah it sounds like a huge amount when when the headlines are kind of filled with figures about how people don't have much money and people are having to turn to debt but i think there are still people out there that have got a lot of spare cash that will be using this as an opportunity to buy their christmas presents or buy items that they've maybe been saving up for um but i think the thing for retailers is you can only spend the pound in your pocket once. And so if you're spending it on Black Friday deals and maybe getting ahead on your Christmas shopping, that's going to be money you're not spending later on in in December. And I think we had this um, a couple of years ago where people got worried about the postal disruption ahead of um, Christmas and everyone brought their Christmas shopping forward, benefited from kind of Black Friday sales and other early sales. And then retailers saw this, kind of slump in the immediate Christmas shopping period that they would normally see a big boom. And I do wonder whether we might see that again this year, people bagging bargains now and then not really shopping much towards the end of December. Yeah, I mean, this. so this is the problem for retailers. I mean, particularly there's quite a few of them on the stock market. You know, lots of them have been saying they're already sitting on too much stock. So obviously Black Friday is an opportunity to sort of shift this excess inventory. But of course, the fact that people have got less money and there's lots of competition around um, would mean that I, I imagine they're going to be sacrificing a lot of profit margin. So whilst sales might look good for this period, the amount of money that these companies actually have left in their own pockets it may, may not be very good at all. So um, I think that's a key thing to think about if, you, if you've got uh, shares in any retail companies yourself. Laura, let's say someone is prepared to go out and buy some stuff, where or how might they find the best bargains? Yeah, so I think we'll probably leave aside the specific deals for now because they change so rapidly. But I think I've got some good top tips if you are planning to shop in the sales. So I think the first and overriding one is if you're buying something that you weren't intending to buy just because you think it's a bargain, then it's not a bargain because you're spending money on something that you wouldn't have bought otherwise. And I think with everyone kind of facing that cost crunch at the moment, it's important to not just rush to buy a bargain because you think it might disappear, but actually weigh up whether you need it. I think the other thing to be aware of is not to be influenced by social media. So there's so many things on various social media platforms of people either flogging goods or having sponsored deals with people to promote their discount codes. And it can really fuel people into thinking that they need to shop in the sales when actually, if you don't need the item, then you don't need to shop in the sales. So if you find yourself easily influenced by those kind of things, then you just switch off social media for a few days. Um, but that said, if, if there are items you want to buy, it can be a really good time to get deals. And Money Saving Expert actually did some research and found that Black Friday items tend to be cheaper than those 
pre-Christmas sales. So, you know, where retailers launch their sales on kind of the 23rd, 24th of December for last minute shoppers. Um, they did, albeit with quite a small sample size, they kind of compared the price cuts and found that Black Friday is better. And you don't have to go through the stress of the last minute Christmas shopping. So that's a bonus. Um, I would say if you're shopping online, use cashback sites as well. That means that you get an extra bit off your um off your shopping and lots of the cashback websites will have special black friday offers where you get a bit more back on your money so that's a really good way of maximizing your discount um dan i know you've recommended them before but camel 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 very weird <laughs> named website but it's a essentially a price tracker for amazon and it's a really good way of checking out whether a deal is really a deal on amazon so a lot of the commentary around black friday is that retailers will hike the price of an item ahead of black friday and then they'll be able to say oh it's got a 50 percent discount on it but actually maybe you could have bought it a month earlier much cheaper so um Camel, camel, camel is a good way of tracking what the price was. So you just plug in the item that you're going to buy and you can see what price it's been listed at previously and whether it's a real bargain or not. Um, and then the other thing I would do is shop around for extra discount codes. So lots of retailers, like you said, Dan, they're keen to get rid of this overstock that they've got or this old stock. Um, and so it might well be that there's a Black Friday sale on, but also there's an extra discount code that you can apply. So I would say, I mean, that's a good rule of thumb for online shopping anyway. Before you click buy on the checkout, just do a quick Google search for um, a voucher code to see if you could get a little bit of extra money off. There's a service called Honey. You can sort of download it. So it's a plug-in for your sort of internet browser and that will um, automatically show you little price history and automatically pop, you know, try out lots of um, voucher codes. And so every, literally every time you shop anywhere, it's just hovering there in the background, seeing if it can save you money. So I mean, if you haven't come across that one, that's well worth having a look at. That's very clever. Uh, do you have your eye on anything for the Black Friday no, sales time? Absolutely nothing at all. It's kind of it's you get into that sort of period where you're thinking, okay, should really start doing some Christmas shopping, but then you think, oh, you know, I'm not sure, not sure what to get. You know, do you just ask someone in your family what they fancy having and whether that takes all the fun out of it? So uh, no, but I'm you know I, I, I'm sure I'll end up browsing, having a quick look at some of the websites to see what's there, but. Um, Maybe I'll, I'll I'll be act on restraint and uh, not not spend on things which I wasn't even planning on having. We'll check back and see whether you've managed to control yourself. <laughs> So it's time for our final guest on this week's show. Faye Wren is a portfolio manager on the Cerno Pacific Fund, which looks to invest in Asian companies that offer superior growth through innovation. A key part of her investment process is to look for companies that have rich intellectual property. So that includes brands, inventions and designs with patents or trademark protection. So Dan recently met up with Faye to talk about this and the trends that she's seeing in the market. So Faye... Why do you like companies with rich intellectual property? You know, what sort of advantages do these sort of intangible assets give them? Um, well, intellectual property is one aspect of how companies can sustain their competitiveness over a long period. So it allows them to develop new products and improve their uh, portfolio offering to grow their sales and 
importantly, it often results in higher margins if their intellectual property, if it, it is protected either through patents or copyrights or trademarks. So you can charge higher fees. Um, the best example would be the drug industry, or you save money by not having to pay very expensive licensing or royalty to another company. Um, and it typically results in a relatively stable competitive landscape and industry structure where companies don't race to the bottom. In terms of um, what goes on in China, I think a lot of people presume Chinese companies are trying to copy ideas from other, other parts of the world, perhaps so they can make cheaper versions. But I do notice there's been a sort of a growing trend for Chinese companies to actually try to protect their own patents with lawsuits. So I mean, have, have you, any of your investments um, over the years, have you ever sort of seen sort of patent disputes at all? Um, yeah, so uh, in our portfolio, we haven't really seen any major patent dis disputes, but there's always um, underneath the surface a lot of minor ones. Typically, it's between the um, Chinese companies themselves. So for one of our companies, Media, which makes um, home, um, home appliances, they have longstanding patent litigations with their um, major other competitor called GRI um, over the years. Um, but then in 2017, I believe, uh, they set up actually a China refrigeration air conditioning alliance so that um, they can standardize the intellectual property protection um, in the industry and bringing other players in the industry um, to respect and support IP and collaborate. Um, so it's not, it's a, it's a quite healthy environment going forward. Um, and Chinese companies have been a big um, applicator of um, patents over the past decade or so. Um, I think last year they collectively um, applied for over 1.5 million patent applications, um, which have overtaken the US to become number one um, in the last couple of years. So there's a lot of IP to protect and there's been um, more specialized reforms and IP tribunals in China to better help these companies protect their own IP. What's, I mean, perhaps from the companies in which you invest, um, how much money do, do in general do, do these businesses spend on research and development, obviously to generate new intellectual property? And, and, and what, what's the sort of the trend? Do you think companies have been investing throughout the pandemic? Um, you know, each year they'll, they'll be spending a bit more and more. Yeah, um, so the, the best way to look at it is um, using a metric called um, R&D as a percentage percentage of revenues. And so depending on the industry, this number can vary between uh, mid-low single digits, for example, in the consumer businesses, um, in the teens for healthcare businesses, and perhaps up, up to 30-40% of sales in software, where software you can account for um, R&D a bit differently because the majority of their R&D is through software developers and that's employee wages. Um, but in absolute numbers, um, 
I think some of the uh, chip makers in like TSMC and Samsung that we invest in have been the biggest um, investor in uh, in R and D. So I think last year TSMC spent just under twelve billion dollars, and that represents um, fifteen percent of the entire semiconductor industry R and D. And Samsung's very close to that. I think ten billion dollars. So do you think that obviously a company can spend a considerable amount of money, but in terms of the actual um, success and the the research and development they're doing, generally, do you think that the type of companies that you look at, um, that all this money is is well spent or do you have to sort of perhaps as an investor accept that that there will be some failures and um, it's a bit of a trial, you know, try something. If it doesn't work, you just move on to the next idea. Yeah, so that really um, hinges on the quality of management and execution of the company. So m- the vast majority of the companies that we invest in are quite um, profitable businesses. So we don't really invest in the very early stage type. So our our companies will have a commercially or at least a portfolio of commercially viable product with um with uh different applications we don't like um companies with just a single product and highly dependent on a single product what we would like to see from them is how they find new applications how they develop new products over time so typically you would the companies would say we um the last three years of sales, we have over 25%, um, over 25% of that come from new products, et cetera. Well, brilliant. Well, Faye Rain from Cerno Pacific Fund, thank you very much for your time. So that's all we have time for this week. Don't miss next week's episode where I'll be talking to the head of savings provider NSNI about the recent boom in the savings market and how the government-backed institution sets its rates. Until then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.